Hey there. Welcome to one of our first stories of the podcast. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. In season three, we shouldered up with you and made it clear that this podcast is not for sale. No advertising or outside influence, a sacred and safe space. Starting with season three, we dedicate a poem to one of our listeners that is standing with us as an enabler of our mission. They're doing so by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. To be true to our word, we're going back through some of our earlier content in seasons one and two and removing the segments that we feel may not be congruent with this idea. So enjoy. This story, like every other story on our podcast, is now 100% advertising free. A safe space where you can let your guard down, listen, and notice if something comes up in your soul. If you would like to be an enabler, and we certainly could use your help, visit bellystory.com and chip in $5 today. Now, here's that extraordinary life story. The goal of this podcast is to bring to life the nature of transformation through people's personal stories of getting knocked down in life and climbing up a new person. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show so that other heroes can find it too. Let me introduce you to Sharon Eisenhower. It was heartbreaking to hear my child say that. I said, honey, I love you. And I don't understand why you're getting these feelings from me. I'm not denying them. It's not that I don't like you, but I'm really feeling incredibly uncomfortable for some reason. And I don't understand why I keep trying to change the way I feel, and I know that it's not about you. She's an author, priestess, podcaster, designer, and a serial entrepreneur. She brings a breadth of knowledge and experience from more than three decades in work on camera as a spiritual seeker and having built a successful handbag design company from the ground up. You can find her podcast, Living with Meraki, at livingwithmeraki.com or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out the resources section for those links. And before we get started, I want to point out that you're going to be joining us while we're sitting in a park in Mill Valley, California, surrounded by the redwood trees. You're going to hear crows. You're going to hear dogs. And yes, you're going to hear some kids. (laughs) Enjoy. Sharon Eisenhower, welcome to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here with you. You were telling me the story of reading to your daughter at night a book called Time Traveling Fashionista. And she looked up at you and she said, Mommy, why don't you like me? How did you respond to that? 
It was heartbreaking to hear my child say that. I said, honey, I love you. And I don't understand why you're getting these feelings from me. I'm not denying them. It's not that I don't like you, but I'm really feeling incredibly uncomfortable for some reason, and I don't understand why I keep trying to change the way I feel, and I know that it's not about you. Let's take a step back, and can you tell us how you and your daughter came to know one another? We, my former wife and I, had applied to adopt a baby, and we had heard in the fall of 2003 that there were a couple of women that were pregnant in Tokyo, Japan, which is the country of origin of my my former wife's family, and that the babies would be delivered in December. And if everything went well, that we would have a brand new baby girl in December. And December came and went, and we heard nothing. And we couldn't reach the adoption agency And five weeks later, we got a phone call. Come now, your baby is waiting. And we flew the next day to Tokyo to meet our five-week-old baby girl. What were those formative years like? Well, the first formative nine months were pure hell. Our daughter, she was a joy and... She didn't sleep through the night, and so we were feeding her every two hours. And I remember at nine months sitting at the edge of her crib, feeding her at 4 a.m., feeling like I was going to die. I couldn't remember my phone number. I couldn't remember anything. You know, the typical stuff a newborn mom and often dads go through. And... It was delightful having this beautiful, joyful light of a being in our lives. And my former wife traveled a great deal. And whenever I was left alone to parent, it was incredibly challenging. Why was it so challenging? I didn't recognize it at the time. But in the dynamic between my partner and myself, I was essentially the the child. And so when she would leave on an unconscious level, it felt as though, number one, I was being abandoned, and number two, I was being abandoned in the care of yet another child. So it was a child being left to take care of a child, even though I was 40-some years old. And this was familiar to your own childhood? It was familiar in that feeling of abandonment. My mother was a very young mother. 
I was 21 when she was born, and there were three more children that were born in a period of five years. And so I was a child in the care of a child who didn't necessarily want to be a mother, who didn't get to finish her own college degree, who didn't get to do the career she wanted to do, and was frankly angry about it, and society told her she shouldn't be. Before all this started, did you always want to be a mother? No. I never wanted to be a mother. I never wanted to raise a child with the tools that I knew I was carrying. And yet, when we both turned 42, my former wife and I, there was a a knowing within us that we were to adopt a child. It felt as though it was a soul calling. That was a shared feeling. Yes. Shared in that she never wanted to bear a child either. But doing it together seemed possible. Doing it together seemed possible. Doing it together felt, without question, like the next right thing. Shortly after your daughter's fifth birthday, your wife at the time asked for a divorce. Yes. And you divorced. Yes. And then you're co-parenting. Yes. And this is when things get very difficult. Yes. Because it wasn't just about my former wife going on occasional trips. I had 50% solo custody, solo responsibility for the care and raising of a child. So at this time, you're also running a business? Yes. And what happened to that business? It got to be successful beyond what I had ever imagined it to be. We had millions of dollars in sales. We were in hundreds of stores all over the U.S. It was a handbag design and manufacturing business. And at the point at which my wife asked for a divorce, the bottom fell out for me. I, it was as though every bit of motivation, every bit of reason for doing what I was doing was gone. So when your daughter is with you, if you could describe in just single words what that relationship must have been like between you two at the time, can you do so for us? Challenging. Confrontational. Heartbreaking. Joyful. Delightful. We started out by mentioning that your daughter had this awareness that something was off. Yes. And she wanted to confront you about that. And I want you to, like, tell us what that made you feel like as someone who loved your daughter, like you just told us that you said back to her and everything else. But what was that like? What did that do to you? It was almost as though the the poison had infected her. The poison of this 
feeling of not being lovable, of not being worthy of receiving love. I got with that question that this wasn't just about having occasional fights or confrontations or the normal kids' stuff. This was something she was really feeling on a deep level. What were some ways that you were trying to express your love? Something that my former partner was great at was, you know, writing special little notes and putting them in her lunchbox or whatever. And I would try doing things like that. And it just always felt like trying to do things like that. I would try to come up with ways we could play together and excursions we could go on. And none of it ever felt connected or really loving or true because I wasn't fully present there. There was an underlying current of resentment about having to do this on my own. You mentioned that there are different types of mothers in the world and that you just weren't the nurturing type of mother. What kind of mother are you? Well, when I was trying to be that mother that society tells us we should be, that that writes the lovely little notes in the lunchbox and that makes late-night snacks for her slumber parties and hosts playdates and does PTA and hosts the Girl Scout meetings and all of those things. I thought I should be those things. I didn't know that there was any other concept of how to be a mother. And I came across a book by Dr. Christian Northrup, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. It's a big book. It's a 500-plus page book. And way towards the end of it, she talks about the idea of Mayan cultures, where when a woman was pregnant, the priestess in the community would determine whether that mother was to be a nurturing mother or She called it a rainbow spiritual mother. I like the term creative spiritual mother because people do things with rainbow. And if a woman was to be a nurturing mother, it wasn't her job to be that creative spiritual mother and vice versa. And Dr. Northrup brought it back to herself by saying, I am not a nurturing mother. And to have tried to have been that kind of mother to my children would have been doing a disservice to both them and myself. And when I heard that, it gave me such a feeling of permission. And it allowed me to drop away so much of the guilt and the shame I had been carrying about not being able to be the kind of mother that society told me I was supposed to be. And a friend of Dr. Northrup's 
also pointed out that in Aboriginal cultures, when a child is asked to point to its mother, it points to its birth mother, as well as all of the mother's sisters, the aunts, and the father being the birth father and the brothers, the uncles, so that when the mother goes on a walkabout, a spiritual journey, she knows that the child is well cared for. And our society doesn't provide for this. Our society expects that primarily a mother, sometimes a father, but primarily a mother is expected to wear all the hats, do all the roles, take all of the responsibility as far as the mothering part for the raising of this child. And coming back to the idea of it taking a village, it truly does. Because to put all of that responsibility on one or two people is way beyond what we should have to carry. But you did have to carry it. And your daughter said that at eight. Then take us through the next few years of, of how you did carry it. I was in a new relationship at the time with a man that was an incredible father to his own children and whom I unconsciously had made into what I refer to now as my good dad. And he, I I don't want to say made me feel loved because no one can make you feel loved, but he reflected that love back to me in a way that I perhaps was never ready to experience it before. And it was such an incredible gift of a relationship. And I knew I was coming to know all the work I had done previous to this told me that this is not where I should be getting this. I need to find a way to be able to give this to myself first so that I can then give it to my daughter. I ended that relationship. And for a while, things actually got worse between me and my daughter because there wasn't the buffer. There wasn't that other being in there reflecting the love to me and My daughter and I went at it even worse. And she was a bit older at this point. She was coming into her teen years and, you know, doing the normal teen belligerent thing. And I hated the way I interacted with her because I was like another teenager in there fighting with her. I wasn't the parent. I wasn't the loving guide. I wasn't the steady presence for her that I wanted to be as a mother. And through a synchronistic series of events, I came to discover what might be described as a spiritual path. It's been a path of spiritual healing for myself that As I was beginning to explore and discover this work that I needed to do, 
it was simultaneously apparent that I needed to take a break, a, a physical break, and do the work of healing this piece on my own. It was orchestrated in a way beyond me. It feels like it was a, a higher-powered thing, if you will, but it required that I move away, that I move 60 miles away from my daughter, which was far enough away that I couldn't always be there. And it was heartbreaking to make that decision. And you just mentioned that you actually had to move away from your daughter, how this was a very difficult decision, but you moved um, 60 miles away. Can you tell us why you made that decision? It was actually a year before I made the move that a friend had proposed that I take some time away, separate from my daughter. And I was appalled by the suggestion. And you know when someone suggests something and you simply think it's not a great idea, you just like brush it off. All the time. (laughs) Well, so that wasn't the case with this. I could barely get out of bed for three days after she suggested that. And I think it's because it, well, clearly struck a nerve. And I knew there was something essentially right about it. But all those stories that told me that I needed to be the good mother did not fit with moving away from my kid. To me, the words abandonment were like a neon sign flashing. And it took me 12 months to become willing to even consider it. And it wasn't even a conscious coming to that. I think it was working on me unconsciously because I was looking for a place to live. I opened an app, a real estate app, and a listing for this place popped up. And the way spirit would have it, the picture of the place was identical to one that I had had on a vision board that I had done a few months prior, which made me pay attention. And it was a short month rent, short-term rental, four-month rental. So I figured I could handle four months during the summer. It could work. And so I moved 60 miles away with the plan that My daughter would spend a week with me and a week with my former wife and go back and forth. And it didn't turn out to be like that. How did it turn out? My daughter felt very abandoned by my moving away. She blamed, the town I moved to was called Sebastopol. She blamed Sebastopol um, for taking me away. And she wanted to have nothing to do with being there, with going there. And... I think she maybe came up two or three times in the 16 months that I lived there. And so I ended up going back to Oakland and staying in the garage apartment at my former wife's house, which actually served to exacerbate the problem because I wasn't 
standing on my own, giving myself that loving, nurturing self-care that I needed to heal, I was actually collapsing into the compromise of a situation that made my daughter and me fight even more. So when I was down there, it was even worse. And I knew, and it made it even more clear that I needed that separation. And by not that I needed to be away from her, it was about needing to be able to stand on my own, in my own truth, so that I could heal my past, my life, and ostensibly heal what happened between my mother and me and her mother and her and generations before. Khalil Gibran has this great line where he says, let there be spaces between our togetherness. And it feels like you knew that you needed to have that space to really rekindle your love for yourself and then ultimately to be able to project that to onto others. Absolutely. And it's so counter to what society says. It's, it's counter to what our idea of mothering is about It's counter to what I thought I should do. And the initial mm, six months, even to a year of that time apart from her, I was just beating myself over the head with guilt and blame and shame about not being there. And yet the deeper part of me knew that I was doing the right thing. And as I set boundaries and limits about not continuing to go and stay there, to, to hold my own space both physically and emotionally, our relationship took its first baby steps towards growing stronger and more true and more aligned with what is a healthy love, a healthy relationship instead of a codependent, collapsed relationship. What were those initial signals and symbols and steps? When we would spend time together It was relatively short periods of time since I wasn't spending the night down there. And because it was such short intervals, we were able to be really present. We really cherished our time together. And we would, she's a phenomenal baker and cook. And we would make things together. And even even as disconnected sounding as watching a TV show together sounds, we would pick shows that we loved and that we shared and that we enjoyed together. And being in that space was 
such a gift, very different from the times where there was an underlying resentment, frankly, because I knew I was doing it from a place of codependence and should, instead of having filled my tanks with love and having enough to overflow and give from that place. Through this experience, you transformed yourself. You realized that you're not that nurturing mother. And now you identify with what you label as the creative spiritual mother. Can you talk to us about that? Now that I'm not pressuring myself to be a mom that I'm not, I've been able to grow in the truth of what I came here to this planet to do, which I am coming to know is as this spiritual conduit and teacher and guide. And I wasn't able to access that peace before. Now that it has a, a channel to flow through, to come through, I am able to be, hopefully, voice of some wisdom and guidance and support to her and to access truth in a way that I never was able to before. To be a wisdom keeper, as it were, and and it also frees me to be a playmate at times because I myself am now more free to know and be who I am. And so it allows for more dimensionality in the relationship because I'm not trying to fit myself into this should mold. In a few words, can you describe your relationship now with your daughter? She was texting me this morning, reporting on a fight she had had with her other mother. (laughs) And uh, we have a really joyful relationship today. I am able to see her as the being that she is instead of what honestly, I've never said this before, but honestly, I, on some levels, viewed her as competition for attention. And until I recognized my own lovability, I wasn't going to be able to do that with her. And now I can cherish her because I cherish myself. Sharon, if you could go back to your younger self, the one that Mm -hmm. felt abandoned by your own mother, caught up in that cycle, what would you say to your younger self? Mm. I would say... Sweetheart, this is not about you. Your 
mother is clearly trying so hard, and yet she doesn't have the tools herself. She never learned how to parent herself. And all of the rage and all of the unhappiness that you're experiencing today is part of an old, 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 unhealed story. And one day, my prayer is that you'll be able to come to a place of forgiveness, of yourself and your mother and all of the other pieces and parts that tell us that we're not worthy, that we're not lovable, that we have to do something or be something to prove our worth because none of that is true that you are worthy and lovable just exactly as you are. It's very powerful. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. What advice do you have for mothers out there, fathers out there who feel like they're not worthy, that they can't live up to these ideals and that are feeling really close to you right now in this story? I think forgiveness is the biggest first piece, and I know that's easy to say and really hard to get to. But hopefully, just in hearing this story, my purpose in part in telling this story is to give people permission, to give themselves permission to not have to fit within that mold, to stop shooting on themselves, to begin to write a new story so that they can give themselves, even if it's just a little bit of a break, a little bit of leeway in their day-to-day parenting, And I don't think for everyone it's going to require as drastic a move as it required for me because I had to understand what this story was about. And hopefully in my doing this, I can shortcut that for them and suggest that perhaps they to the best of their ability, find resources to support them, whether it's therapy, whether it's 12-step recovery, whether it's some other type of recovery program where they can begin to nurture and nourish themselves. Because that is where it all starts, is learning to nurture and nourish that kid that never got it as a child because we can't give from an empty well. Sharon, thank you for joining us among the redwood trees here in Mill Valley. We're in a park, which 
just, just all this beautiful energy is around us and birds and lots of life. Mm-hmm. And you've brought such a powerful story to our listeners, to the heroes out there who are listening. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. What an extraordinary life story. If this story moved you, help enable our mission and keep this advertising free podcast going by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. I'm responsible and accountable for this podcast, but I don't do it alone. Milos Brochetta is our sound engineer. Artie Wu is our advisor, and many others have helped along the way to bring the story to life. Thank you for listening. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. Thank you for rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. Stay tuned. I'm working on some stories that you need to hear. <laughs>